Yes, wherever you are, it is going to be true that the sun at 3.30, 3? Well, it's about 3.20. We'll be streaming in this room. All right. Um, Let's open with a word of prayer, and we will talk more miracles. Uh, Lord God, we come to you tonight, and we thank you for the sunshine. Uh, We thank you for this day that you have given us to enjoy and to flourish to be together and to open your word, and we just pray that you would be with our time here tonight, that it would be honoring to you, and as we seek to to gather a deeper understanding of you, we pray for your wisdom and your insight in the direction of your Holy Spirit. May you move in and through each of us as we seek to challenge and spur one another on to love and good deeds. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so previously in the Gospel of Matthew, we were talking about these healing events. Uh, So we come out of the Sermon on the Mount. We have these uh, triplets of healing events. Uh, And so last week we went through the first triplet. And as we talked about, there was a a very interesting progression uh, within the triplet of the request or how the request was happening, who the request was happening through. And now this week... We have, depending on how you uh, divide it out, we either have three, uh, we really have three distinct events. Uh, One is, in some ways, is slightly tied together. What I um, want us to think about is almost a funneling effect of how Matthew groups them together in this peculiar funnel from large scale to very intimate scale. Uh, as we go forward. So that's where we're at. You might find it odd that we go from this, these healings uh, into this first little section. We're in verse 18 of chapter 8. Uh, now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, uh, he gave orders to go over to the other side. So they're on the sea, uh, on the seashore. And a scribe came up to him and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he, Jesus, was asleep, and they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? When he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially 
what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. And getting into the boat, or a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So it's interesting that we, we come out of this uh, section of healing, personal healings, into this little, almost a narrative switch up where we're talking about uh, these disciples. So they're on the seashore, they're ready to, to make their way across to the other side, Jesus is seemingly trying to get away from the crowd uh, and get a break because he's been healing all these individuals. And the first person that comes to him is this uh, unknown named scribe. Now, we know that we have these categories of scribes and Pharisees. And to even say that this scribe was breaking and following after, wanting to follow after Jesus, creates some interesting things in the audience that would have heard it for the first time. And for us, it seems to be uh, mostly normal. But notice what he says when he is requested. Jesus, in essence, gives almost a little mini Sermon on the Mount. And mini, I mean like micro, like micro machine, like tiny, tiny little bit about what does it mean to follow him, to be a disciple of his. It means that you're not going to receive what you think you need or that you think you want. Jesus says to him, the the man makes the claim that he will follow him wherever he goes, and Jesus says, you don't really know what you're asking or you don't really understand what you're saying. In order to follow after me, you're going to basically move away from everything that you find to be safe and familiar these things that are um, residents. You'll be displaced in the world. And then the next person that shows up says, I will follow you. I just need to take care of some business first, which creates some interesting questions around, did his dad just die? Is this like, hey, I'll be back in an hour? Is this, I'll be back in a week? More than likely, the the picture is he has an aging father who is not dead that maybe will die or maybe he's mostly dead, but he's still technically alive. 
And so this man says, I need to get my worldly affairs in order, and then I will be ready to follow you. And Jesus, again, makes this statement of, you really don't understand what you're saying. In order to follow me, the only thing that matters is following me. So it doesn't matter about home or personal comfort. It doesn't matter about your affairs of the day or even your worldly affairs. To follow me means you move beyond everything else. So, typically, what we've done with Scripture is we go to this, and we just lift this out of the text, and we dissect what Jesus is trying to do here. But notice what is happening as we move forward. So Jesus lays out what does it look like to follow after him. You forsake anything that the world has to offer, any comfort, any duties, and you're going to launch into this world. Well, what's literally the next thing that happens? They load up on the boat, and they're going to cross to the other side. Now, we know it's more than likely daytime because of how the narrative flows together. And if you are familiar with uh, this area and how the, the, t- the topography exists, storms can come in very quickly. And so they're on their way. Think basically the northern third of Malax Lake is about the size of the Sea of Galilee that they're talking about. And so they're, they're going, they're trying to get across Malax Lake. Across, they're like going from Garrison to Aiken, roughly speaking. And all of a sudden, this storm kicks up. Well, Jesus just told two people, if you're going to follow me, some things are going to happen. He just told all of his disciples back in the Sermon on the Mount, if you're going to follow me, some things are going to happen. And now something is happening. See this? And so the disciples know the cost of following Jesus, They encounter something, and what's the first thing that they do? They freak out. They are terrified. Now, I can't talk about this story without thinking about being out on Gull Lake, and and, and we were were anchored up here in Hole in the Day. It was a gorgeous day in Hole in the Day because it's protected. But out on Gull Lake, the winds are raging. And so we go to leave and go back, and the waves are coming over the front of the sailboat, and some people on the boat are freaking out. And I'm like, woohoo! Until I wasn't. So the disciples know what's ahead of them. And yet, when they're presented with, uh, as, as somebody suggested, it's like a bit of a pop quiz. It's not like a full-on test. It's like a, a little pop quiz about, do you, disciples, really trust that following Jesus is worth it and that he is in control? Now, the interesting thing, as we discuss things like weather events, is we can, we can take weather events and we can twist them in very inappropriate ways. 
and we can say that God is using this weather event to punish a particular group of people. Except the chances are almost zero that he's not. Because if, if a, a tornado comes ripping through Oklahoma in the springtime, no one is surprised. Because in fact, what happens in Oklahoma in the springtime? Tornadoes. In the fall, if you live in the Gulf of Mexico, what happens? Hurricanes tend to kick up. Because that's how the natural world seems to function. It's not the case that God is like spinning up hurricanes and sending them on their way so that he can do his business. And yet, for some reason, we have to come up with a rational explanation for what is happening. And we can say that God is sovereign and in control because that's clearly what Jesus is demonstrating. He has the authority to control nature. It doesn't necessarily follow that God is causing these natural events to happen in an order to wreak judgment on particular people. Now, I have a very lengthy paper on this exact topic. So we could go on for the rest of the time and then some talking about natural evil and natural disasters and why these things happen and, and dissecting them, which most of you really are not interested in. So when we talk about storms and when we talk about God's ability to control the natural order that we see here in this story of Jesus calming the storm, we need to exercise extreme caution with how we interpret natural events. And also, we, we often refer to things as natural disasters when in actuality most of the things are just natural weather patterns that happen. For example, if a, if a tornado kicks up between Pierre and Faith, South Dakota, chances are it's actually going to hit nothing <laughs> for miles. So is a tornado a natural disaster? No, not necessarily because, in fact, all these things happen all the time. How many hurricanes kick up but don't ever come uh, ashore? So I just want to caution us as we talk about natural disasters and God's hand in them, to be very, 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 very careful to, as we dissect them. We don't want to just immediately go to this event and say, well, well, Jesus could have stopped the storm. That is true, that that does not uh, result in causation. Unless you're talking insurance, and then it's an act of God, and then we'll just whatever. But why is this so important? Because Matthew wants us to make this immediate connection between the cost of following Jesus Christ and the things that we will encounter and the authority, because that is a theme that is happening throughout these miracles that we went all the way back to 
in the, the initial testing of Jesus, the authority that Jesus has on earth is being displayed through these miraculous events or these miracle stories. So the, the, the followers of Jesus don't do so well on this first pop quiz. They freak out. They don't believe that God is going to protect them. Wouldn't this be like the absolute worst story ever? You know, you're like watching a movie, and you know, one of the main characters is in peril. And it's like the second, or maybe it's a show, it's the second episode, and like the main character is in peril. You're like, there's ten more episodes. This person's not going to die now. Jesus isn't going to drown in the first, you know, quarter of the gospel. Like God does all this work to get Jesus on earth, and then he drowns. And you're like, well, of course he's not going to drown. He's just going to walk on water. The rest of them are going to drown. That's why they're freaking out. Well, Jesus says they're afraid because, and this word that is translated as little faith is actually one Greek word. And it's, it's fascinating that Jesus is calling out his own disciples for having this lack of faith. Because remember, who has the faith so far? The centurion, right, had all this faith back in the, in the last uh, set of miracles. And so Jesus comes along, and he wakes up, and he's like, fine. Notice he doesn't calm the storm and then chastise them. The boat's like doing this, waves are coming over, and he's like, why did you wake me up? Shh. And the sea is immediately calmed. Imagine if you were on shore. Or imagine if you were another one of the boats and you're like, get in the boat. Jesus is leaving. You're following after Jesus and you're like, this was a terrible idea. And all the wives are like, I told you so. And then all of a sudden it's just calm. And you're like, get out the paddles. But there is this response and this marveling that takes place, this awestruckness. And, and we have so <laughs> we have so devalued words. They were like, that was awesome. When it was like really not even that great of a thing. But for us to when we are truly in awe of what God has done, this moment of just sheer marveling at the reality of who God is and the power that he has. Most of these events take place in natural settings. You know, if you've ever been out in a storm where you're just like, oh my word. <laughs> and you're just marveling at the power of nature and then the fact that Jesus has more power than nature has. And so how often is it that we get spun into missing out on the marvels of nature? There was a really great article in the Dispatch um, last week about this Minnesota uh, groundbreaking female wild spirit who 
did all of these adventures. Did anyone read this? She did all of these adventures into the Arctic, and she captured plants and brought them back, and we have them here in Minnesota. And she would marvel at the most simple things that, that happen and occur in nature. Do we have the ability to stop and marvel at the smallest of things because it's easy to marvel at the biggest of things? My aunt sent me this book that, and it's, <laughs> we were driving to Thanksgiving, and Nikki's like, okay, you just, I'm just going to sleep because this book is terrible. She didn't say terrible. She's like, this book is putting me to sleep. I mean, a whole chapter on like what's taking place in this muddy pond <laughs> and the layers of silt. Fascinating, right? And like all the little tadpoles coming to, coming to life. Amazing! You're like, is it Really? What causes awe in us? So they land on shore after having this experience, and immediately the welcoming party is two demon-possessed individuals who are so fierce that nobody wants to go by them. Now they're living in, this, uh, in the catacombs, in the tombs area, which would have been a dirty place anyways. Also something that we often miss is that these are non-Jewish people. This is a non-Jewish area. So these are Gentiles or pagans, depending on how you think about it. And so immediately they're, they're met by these two individuals that clearly, according to Matthew, are possessed by demons. Now, again, we could spend loads of time talking about demonology and all of these things. And I want us, again... You're like, for somebody who is so not careful, you keep telling us to be careful. I'm far more careful with how we interpret Scripture than most areas of my life, okay? One extreme around this is we know today psychology tells us that this is what these two individuals were experiencing. They were not demon-possessed. The other side says, they were clearly demon-possessed, and anyone who has any malady is demon-possessed. And so we need to cast out these demons. And like with most polar extremes, the answer is somewhere probably in the middle. So Jesus encounters these two demons. What is so interesting is that they immediately know and recognize who he is. And remember back to when we talked about the testing of Jesus by Satan. It was about his sonship and how he fit as the son of God. And what do these demons say? You, you are the son of God. They don't even question it. They say, son of God, what do you want from us? Now, I know some of us say, well, how, how are these demons communicating? Well, they're speaking through these two individuals. And so they know exactly who Jesus is. And they know what he's there to do. He's there to get rid of them. And so when we talk about the calming of the storm and the demon possession, a lot of people want to link those two together as Jesus being in control of the natural world 
and restoring chaos to nature and restoring these two individuals out of the chaos that is their possession. I like to think of it as God is, Jesus is in control of the natural world, calming the storm, and he's in control of the supernatural world, which is telling these demons where they can go. Which wasn't actually supposed to be a joke, but I can now hear how that was somewhat funny. (laughs) So they know that he is there to, to get rid of them. And by getting rid of them, he is going to restore the lives of these two individuals. Now remember, when we talk about this, we look at these events, and what is Jesus doing? He's restoring the lives of people that for the Jews would have been the last people on the list to get restored. So these pagans who are dirty on so many levels, Jesus goes to them and he restores them. How amazing is that? The challenge is he kills a bunch of pigs in the process. Now I know there's all these jokes, you know, it's a classic Jewish thing. You don't like the pigs, so you get rid of them. Okay. He does what he has to do by getting rid of them. Now, part of what we wonder is, were there that many demons in these two individuals that they all went into all the pigs? Was it the case that he sent them into the two lead pigs? And pigs aren't real smart, so all the pigs followed the two lead pigs off the cliff. Like two, de- two, two pigs were cast, had two demons cast into them. What did the rest do? Okay? That doesn't matter. What matters is the fact that Jesus has done a huge problem, or has created a huge problem, for the capitalism that exists or the, the money-making and the food that exists for all of these people. So Jesus doesn't care about the economy of this community. He cares about the restoration of two individuals' lives back to health. Now, the rest of the community is not really happy. Yeah, they run into town, they come back. All of the city comes out, is what Matthew tells us. And they are like, please, please get out of here. So we have these interesting interactions with Jesus where some people are terrified when he doesn't do something. Some people are terrified when he does do something. But he goes to these people and he does this restoration of lives and there isn't worship there's terror and why is that why is the response from these people not one of great adoration and worship but one of terror and rejection of jesus so he responds and he gets in the boat and they go back over across to what is Capernaum, which is deemed as his city at the time, which is where he is seemingly finding his home base. 
And immediately, it's the sense that we get, and, and behold, look, here something happens. These people bring to him this paralytic who's lying on a bed. And what happens? Jesus sees their faith, and he says to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Does Matthew tell us that the paralytic says anything? Do the people that are carrying the paralytic say anything to Jesus? No. These individuals have heard about Jesus and they bring their friend to Jesus because they know that he has the ability to restore him or her to life. Think about the picture that Matthew continues to give us. Last week, we had the centurion who was advocating on behalf of a young person that's living in his home. And Jesus heals that person because of the faith of the centurion. Now, we see these individuals who are advocating on behalf of their paralyzed friend to get him in front of Jesus so that he can experience restoration. How often is it the case that we, in essence, lay aside our lives for our friends to try to get them in front of Jesus? Or we go to God on their behalf And we advocate before the Father, God, please, my friend is in need of you. Because does the paralytic have faith? We don't know. What we do know is the faith of the friends is so moving to God that Jesus restores the life of their friend. And yet, That's not really quite what he does first, right? Because he forgives his sins. Remember back in 120? What is Mary told about, Mary and Joseph, what are they told about their son? Yes, Jesus, this this infant baby Jesus is going to save the people from their sins. And so Jesus sees this opportunity and, and he has dealt with natural chaos. He's dealt with supernatural chaos. And now he deals with personal chaos. And he forgives this individual of their sin. So we see this coning effect from larger to smaller within these three narrative events. But how often, again, is it that we just Chop, 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 lift things out of context, and we miss the larger story of what is happening and the importance of how these function. Yes, Chuck? Uh, Is it a metaphor? Is the paralysis a metaphor for his sin? That's the question? Yes. Look at that. You asked the question, 
I gave you a direct answer. There was no dodging. There was no shifting. There was no, we'll get to that. Boom. Question, answer. Woo! Now, the idea is any physical ailment was a result of a sin that existed in your life. And so, did this person have sin in their life? We would say yes. Is this person paralyzed? Well, obviously, that's what Matthew says, so we would say yes. Are the two correlated? No. But G- again, Jesus says, what is it easier for me to do? I mean, I've been healing all these people. Like, I kind of got this healing thing down. He brings this bombshell of his ability to forgive sin into the narrative at this point that, that causes this massive eruption around, wait, you, okay, you can do this and you can do that, but you absolutely cannot do this. You cannot say that you have the ability to forgive sin. And that's how the people respond. The scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. Which again, if we go fast forward to the end, what is Jesus brought up on charges of? Blasphemy. And so Matthew gives us this foreshadowing of, okay, wait a second, Jesus, you can't do that. And yet he says, oh yeah, watch me. And he says, what is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man, new phrase that comes in that we're going to want to pay attention to, has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Again, notice this word authority. Jesus is exercising authority in all of these different particular ways. And one of them is that he has the ability and the power to restore the chaos that comes about as a result of sin in our lives. And it's easy for us to say, again, you know, in so many cases, we just we need to bring them Jesus, get their sins forgiven. A hungry person doesn't really care what we have to say when their stomach is louder than any voice in their head. In some ways, for the paralytic, when Jesus says your sins are forgiven, he's got to be thinking, well, this was a waste of time. (laughs) I mean, that might be a little bit of a stretch. Okay, not typically, not totally heretical, but... I mean, if you hear all these healing events and then your, son, your friends get you in front of Jesus and you're like, now is the time. And he's like, your sins are forgiven. And you're like, but I want to walk. <laughs> it's like Christmas and you're like, what is this? <laughs> well, you know, it's the gift that keeps giving all year long. Jesus 
puts the two together because, yes, he is about the forgiveness of sins. When, but we have so misunderstood that in, in this, this way that, that perverts it into something that is so less than. Like, sin is chaos. Sin is death. When we actively participate in sin, it creates chaos and death in our lives. And Jesus says, I have come to take it away, to restore life. For today and for the future. And also I care about the physical needs of this individual that is right in front of me. And he's not grandstanding. He's not like, okay, well, I guess watch this. Stand up. He's trying to make a holistic point about the individual, that it is about more than just this forgiveness of sins category. And he is displaying that he has authority over nature, over the supernatural and over the personal sin that is chaos in our lives. And then he goes on from there. And he sees Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he says to him, follow me. And Matthew does. Just like that. Boom. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, what house? Well, it seems to be that that. Again, this is like the Zacchaeus moment. He's like, Matthew, follow me. We're going to your house. Which is kind of ironic because Jesus has never been to his house. (laughs) And so they're at Matthew's house and they're reclining. They're breaking bread together. They're participating in fellowship. And who's there? These categories that are completely less than the tax collectors And the sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? So, uh, I don't know if I've told this story before, but chances are if I forgot, you forgot too. So, Um, (laughs) when we lived in New Mexico, we, uh, we would go to the... We'd go to the swimming pool on occasion. There was a tiny little sw- city swimming pool, and Jesse was the guy that ran the place. And he was like, hey, you know, if you're going to be around this fall, you, you should play softball with us. Because, you know, it's New Mexico. It's the desert. It's 100 and some degrees. Nobody plays softball in the summer. You play in the fall. And so I was like, yeah. Bubs and I are like, let's play. So every game we would bring our dollar and 50 cents because every person contributed that to the ump so that the ump would stay and ump your game. And I was also coaching football at the junior high. And then one day I show up for football practice, and Carl Ashbaugh, who was coaching with me, he said, Eric, uh, some of the parents were a little concerned about you. I said, well, why is that, Carl? Because they saw whose softball team you're on. And I was like, Carl, what's wrong with my softball team? He's like, Eric, those are all the drug dealers from town. <laughs> And I was like, well, gee, I wonder why every game we almost have a fist fight in our dugout. (laughs) And why am I bringing my dollar and 50 cents when I guarantee they got more cash in their trunk than I do? Eric, but I told them, you run the Christian camp out at the lake. And they were all relieved. (laughs) 
You ever have that where people are like, why are you hanging out with them? Like, seriously, you know what those people do. You know who those people are. Now, I understand when you're younger, you don't hang out with certain people because, you know, guilt by association. At least, that's what I learned. In a very real way. My prophetic mother was correct. Cody Delosier did end up in a not good spot. But why is it that we choose to associate or not associate with certain people? Why is it that we choose to have certain people in our home or not have certain people in our home? Or choose to go to certain people's homes or not go to certain people's homes? Because for Jesus to go into Matthew's home... First of all, even to associate with Matthew as a tax collector and call him and invite him into participating in what he is doing is scandalous. And then he chooses not to surround himself with the elites, but he chooses to surround himself with those people who are deemed as the lowest of low in this massive category of tax collectors and sinners. And then Jesus says this, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And as we read this, it's interesting to think about what what part of go and learn what this means is he talking about? Is he talking about the previous sentence or is he talking about the sentence that occurs after that? He references Hosea in the I, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. How often when we go through Old Testament scripture do we hear words like, I don't care about your circumcision. Circumcise your heart. I don't care about your sacrifices. I want you. I mean, the whole Old Testament concludes in Malachi with like, shut this place down because it would be better if you didn't do what you're doing in this religious practice. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Can we say that sentence and actually mean it? Because sacrifice becomes this idea of equivalent justice. Like if you do this, you offer this. If you do this, you offer that. And Jesus is saying, I'm about mercy. And how often is it that we say, I desire justice and not mercy. And he says, I came not to call those who participate in regular religious duty. 
I come to call those who are broken and rejected, living in chaos and death. I mean, if we were to create a paraphrase, I desire, for I came not to call those who participate in performative church, but those who acknowledge they're just as messed up as the next person. I know, I'm preaching to the choir. And yet, how often is it that we can, we can forget this? We can forget the reality that, that we are the sinners and we want to be classified as the righteous. But righteous in this case is not the righteous that, that we are thinking of. Remember back to the Beatitudes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount and how Jesus, in essence, is flipping the paradigm of how this life is going to function and how his kingdom, the kingdom of God, breaking into this world is going to function. And he is breaking through every paradigm that these people would have had and saying, you think one thing, but here the reality is what I'm looking for is something completely different. All right, you can go to your discussion groups.